Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. On December 11, 1965, the Velvet Underground played their first concert and their first paid gig at the most unlikeliest of places, a high school auditorium in Summit, New Jersey. They opened for a popular local band called The Middle Class, who had a top 40 AM radio hit. The audience was packed with middle class fans who were mostly sheltered kids from this picture-perfect town some 25 miles west of New York City. The kids were just discovering the Beatles, but were dancing to Lindy, Waltz, and the Cha-Cha at school dances. It was in this atmosphere that a black leather-clad velvet underground hit the stage, blasting loud, droning, screeching music laced with drug and sex-infused lyrics. On the stage for merely 20 minutes, they performed three songs, ending with the amazing song Heroin, and the audience responded with mostly booze, to, but to sort of a smattering of applause. And that is the backstory behind this wonderful short documentary called The Velvet Underground Played at My High School. We're joined today by the director, Robert Pietri. Well, first of all, let me ask you, are you a, a Velvet Underground fan? I was a huge Velvet Underground fan. When the Velvet Underground records were, re, were being reissued, I'd heard about it. You know, everybody was talking so rapturously about it. Um, I just went out and bought them. It was just like, look, what is this? I was in high school, you know, like a, like a freshman in high school. And, you know, you're trying to find yourself and your, your people and your tribe. And I had found them. It, it hit me right in the chest. I was a nascent Bowie fan at the time, too. So all of this was churning inside of me. And I realized very quickly, this is something that um, uh, I'm going to be working on for some time. Now, how did you know... Um... Tony Janelli, who is the narrator and really the subject of, of this film. Tony is the head of cinematography at um, uh, NYU's grad film program. I was in a grad film program at the time, uh, but then I was also teaching at the time because I had done some work before going that, um, uh, you know, is post-production and we were team teaching a class. And of course, you know, we have to meet and talk about like, okay, well, what do we want to do and how do we want to do it? And then one night we just sort of like, hey, let's, you know, like, what are, what are you working on? You know, we're both film professionals. I'm starting my career. You're in the middle of it. And he was like, I'm, I'm working. I'm working on something, you know, a documentary or something that happened to me in high school. And I thought, what happened in high school? And that was on an elevator. And by the time we got to, to the bottom floor, I was like, I need to buy you a beer and I need to hear everything you're talking about. That's how we met. And that was um, how the project got started. But it was a long gestation after that. The film has a really cool visual style to it. Wow. When did you come up or how did you come up with the idea to do it? And if you want to describe what that style is. Remember, I, I just said we it had a long gestation period. It had a, a really, you know, like because Tony had gone to teach in um, Singapore and, um, you know, and then I was working on, on stuff and, we, you know, and I, I moved to Los Angeles and years had gone by from the time we initially talked about it years and um, then we finally decided to start m making it and that you know we had all kinds of ideas you know tony is a is a, a internationally known cinematographer he, he's new york based but um 
Um, he shot for Scorsese, for Demi. And I was like, you know, we can do a found footage thing as if we found footage of the Velvet on, of the concert. And he was like, no, 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 no. I don't, you know, and he, you know, we went back and forth. Anyway, I, I started, we decided on animation as a um, way to do it because there was no footage and there was no recording of it because the Velvet Undergrounds were insignificant and unimportant at the time. They hadn't met Warhol. This was their first gig. I started drawing. And I, I, you know, some background on me, I, I come from a fine art background. I went to Carnegie Mellon. I studied in the, the College of Fine Arts. So I, I always drew, but, you know, I just, I just, just drawing like, okay, like this, Tony, like that. And we were, we had planned to hire an animator. But what I started coming across was like, okay, first off, every photograph of the Velvet Underground is in black and white. And really it's 90% black and maybe 10%, if I'm being generous, white and any other tones. So I started, you know, working pen and ink on it. And there was a point where I was using so much ink that I would I had to buy bottles of ink, which if you know anything about, you know, ink, ink you typically use halfway and then, the you know, you forget about it for years. You don't go through a whole bottles of ink at a time. So anyway, I was using so much ink on it that I said, I'm going to flip the switch on this and I'm going to start drawing on black paper with white chalk, you know, uh, to make these concept sketches, you know. Yeah. And that was a real turning point. That was a real turning point for the film. We started deciding that, like, okay, so from the kids... Whenever we're in the kids' experience, it's going to be more pen and ink and mid mid tone um, uh, gray. So you get a, a fuller range. But whenever we do the velvets, whenever we see them, it's going to be black and white, and that's it. You know. Um, so what we did is we had um, Tony. Tony, I, I I gave Tony the idea, and I, uh, he loved it. Um, I said, let's shoot like the Velvet Underground as a, um, we'll, we'll cast the Velvet Underground. And he happened amongst his students, because I had left at the time I graduated. That's how long this took between us actually thinking about it and starting it. I'd already left. He was able to cast the whole, the, the Velvet Underground from, from his students. And, and, um, and I said, oh yeah, that's good enough. You know, one guy who played Sterling Morrison didn't have Sterling Morrison's hair. It's like, just put a hat on him. Just put a big floppy hat on him and I'll, I will figure the rest out. And then he shot it with a high key light, just one single light. And I, I showed to, and, and it was sort of like, it was behind them, up and behind them. So they would just get like this sort of rim light effect. Then I used that as the basis. And I, I, I say I, and we, you know, like, uh, I did the concept art for all of it. I did all of the kids' art, but all of the, the rotoscoping, which is what we did for the Velvets, that was done by a team of people that was led by Lee Terwilliger, an outstanding animator that I had met who loved the project. <laughs> and he was the right guy for it. He was just crazy enough to take it on. He animated all that, and he brought together the team of animators that would do that following my concept art. That took forever. Just so you know, the last shot in the film is um, 17 seconds long. It's the longest shot in the movie. Um, it's just Lou Reed and John Cale, you know, playing to the end of, um, to the end and the first credit. That took John Cone one month to do. That was all he was doing. It was the only, his only contribution. And it was just one month of, this is you. You're on this. On the other side. <laughs> um, well, it looks, I, I got to tell you, Robert, it looks great. It's just a great looking, especially the rotoscoping, the part with the velvet. 
I was completely convinced, even though I sort of knew they weren't the Velvet Underground that we were actually watching. They just did a great job of giving us that vibe. And it feels completely appropriate to the setting, to the music, to their their aesthetic, if you will. So I just, I love that about the film. And the other animation is about Tony and his interaction with his girlfriend and the audience and who their reaction to the velvet singing and, yeah. you know, all that stuff. And it's a different style, but it all works just exceptionally well. So I love this, that you described uh, the, the filmmaking part, because that's one of the things that I, I love to do with this show is to be able to kind of give, other filmmakers an idea of how the yeah. process works and and oh, yeah. such but i do want to go back for just a minute to go back and describe that in 1965 as you mentioned the first peg gig that, that the velvet underground i assume they got paid <laughs> okay 75 bucks 75 dollars okay i mean i could go into i mean there's almost always a story when it, when you when you bring up the velvet underground there's almost some other weird iconic legendary thing about them. That's the thing that's so compelling about them. They lived in the basically the shadows of American music during right. most of the period of time. In fact, I would say all the period of time that they were actually active. They were a kind of a, you know, a found item somewhere in the corner of the music world. But everything about them is seems to be of the, the stuff of legend. I, I don't know if that maybe is overstating it a little bit, but nonetheless, it's, it, go ahead. Tell me the story of the $75. The re, what's significant about, the, about this concert is this is the first time the, 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 the core four, Lou Reed, John Cale, Sterling Morrison, and um, Mo, Mo Tucker yeah. played together. The, with with no were, Nico. Nico was not there for this. Nico was not there, no. Yeah, okay. And um, I'll, I can okay. tell you, remind me about that. Okay. Um, because uh, they, this was the first time they played together. I think they'd had some concerts under different names and um, and stuff, but it wasn't with Maureen Tucker. They had another guy named Angus, who actually I think he went on to some to some other you know like very even ultra cult following. The, the only reason this concert came together was because of the middle class. The middle class were actually a very a legit garage band that every single one of the people in the uh, band went on to become a player on, uh, in the music scene. The lead singer uh, sang for Steely Dan on like the first album. That's that's no slouch. That's not the B team. The uh, bass player went on to write songs and uh, play uh, tour with and marry Carol King. There you go. Uh, who, who wrote their first single? One of the uh, one of the guys went on to become an A and R an A and R guy for uh, Atlantic Records. Once again, these are plum jobs, you know. Right. Well, um, now the the song that they were on the radio for yes was written by King Goffin. This is one of the great problems, not not the problems, but one of the you know like we had the song and we knew the song, but we couldn't find who owned the publishing for the song. And we basically, we scoured, we had a music supervisor looking for, for a long time to try and find anyone who could trace who actually owns this song. So we can pay them or ask their permission and we could never actually find it. And I, you know, I use every opportunity to say, if anyone knows who owns Free, Free as the Wind by the middle class, please let us know. Uh, we'd love <laughs> to just, just make it right. You know, the, the middle class was the reason that the, the concert came about and they they were trying to put together a bill and their manager had just seen them at like some 
freak out in the village and had signed them. But he, you know, he just signed them almost just like get them off the table. The middle class needed an opening act. And he said, well, I'll give you 75 bucks if you show up in New Jersey and um, play, you know, play, play um, uh, three songs. So then Angus, he was just like in a, you know, in, in the mo- in the moment, he was like, wait a minute, we're going to take money and they're going to tell us when we can start and stop playing. And he basically called, you know, the rest of the guys sellouts and walked out. This is true. This is true. He just was like, I didn't know that, you know, <laughs> you work for the man. He left and then they were stuck without a, um, uh, without a drummer. So one of their friends, sister, played drums. I'm doing air quotes here <laughs> and had a car. So, and I'm, I'm not going to, I am not going to besmirch the great with the seminal work of Maureen Tucker because it is absolutely changed drumming forever. But I'm going to say that the car was a big was a big thing. <laughs> and and as Tony Janelli describes in the film, she's standing up playing drums, and he said, "I've been seen. I've never seen that before. The only time I ever seen it was at a football game at halftime. Right? It was just and 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 you. This is what's so great about them. Uh, they were sort of well known. If and correct me if I'm wrong about this. Certainly in their initial stages of development as a band." for being notoriously not really musicians and not accomplished at their instruments to the degree. Now, you can argue when you listen to their music, they knew exactly what they were doing with their with what they were what whatever their capability was. They got a lot out of it. But I think you could argue that they weren't particularly virtuosos at what they were maybe help me out if if you no, Well, you here's, I I I'm going to say that Maureen Tucker certainly was untrained, okay. but uh, John Cale was conservatory trained. Well, that's true. You're, you're absolutely John right. Cale was conservatory trained, and yeah. um, and Lou Reed. I've, I have a lot. I've, a lot of people split the room with Lou Reed. Some of them were just like, "Oh, come on, that guitar is whatever." And then there's some people like, "No, that is a protean, you know, blast <laughs> from from you know from the core." Of the you know, and I'm just like. I'm going to say yes to both of those. Well, know? I was um, yeah, I would argue just just to I'm sorry to interject, but yeah. they they got the got the sound that they I believe they got the sound that they wanted. How they got there is for discussion. Let's shall right. we say right? right? I mean, is that fair? They definitely were going for something that no one. They had a they had a picture in their mind um, that was um, not in tune with the rest of what was happening in the music scene. That's for sure. I remember like reading somewhere that someone described Maureen Tucker's drumming like being a trash can metronome. You know, it's just sort of like because she's remarkably precise, but it's just, just sort of like what is she, what is she playing? You know, like um, well, the song that's in the film. By the way, I want to remind our listeners speaking with Robert Pietri, and he's the director of the film "The Velvet Underground," played at my high school. And it's a short film, and you can go to uh, cornerbarpictures.com, I believe would be a good spot to go to watch the film. Is there a better place? Oh, no, it's not at Corner Bar. It's over at PBS uh, POV. I mean, oh. I, it's, it was part of the, it's now, it's on It's on um, PBS right now. So you okay, can so, oh, so yeah. go to pbspov.org, yeah, I believe yeah. is the yeah, yeah. way to get exactly. there. Exactly, exactly. But um, they play the of the songs they play. The first song sounds like they were warming up. Maybe I'm not sure exactly what there was three songs, but they certainly played Venus and Furs and Heroin, and yeah. two of the most iconic songs of their catalog. They played. Yeah, and, and, they, and they 
they didn't even they didn't even check to see who was in the audience. I mean, I mean, they knew that they're in a high school, but they're playing these songs to a bunch of you know fifteen year old kids in suburban New Jersey. You know, they didn't they didn't say you know what we should let's just play bebop a loobop or yeah. or something. You know, um, no, they didn't they didn't change their <laughs> They didn't change their set list at all, which is an astonishing to me. Cause like these, you know, when you when you they're like when you think of myself as 15, I was like, oh, I was all right when I was 15. When you look at a 15-year-old kid, it's like that's a kid, you know? Yeah. And to introduce them to whips and chains and um, um opiate, you know, yeah. opiates, it's um, um it's a, it's an astonishing disconnect. <laughs> um or I like to think of it as a commitment. Yes. I, I like that. I like that. They were committed. Yeah. Who we are. We're yeah. not changing it. Angus left the band because, you know, he told us <laughs> sellouts. We're not selling out. They've made movies. I don't know if anyone's ever made a movie about the Velvet Underground, but they show up in so many documentaries and references yeah. in film and the influences we were talking about, you know, at before we started our conversation, who was more influential in terms of the the, pro, the progression of music from the mid '60s moving forward? They can certainly be argued as one of the most influential bands of all time, and and, and their sound was so different in terms of sort of what we now listen to, the bands we think are great, the influence that they that their music has had on them is for many bands is profound. They were working on the avant-garde, yeah. you know, like there was nothing like them, you know, uh, uh, except maybe in like the most extreme wings of, of jazz or Nick Coleman or right. something like that. You know, right. people who were working with that. I, I've forgotten the name of the person who uh, John Cale had studied with or um, uh, had mentored with, but he was very much in like the John Cage and... Um, of um, avant-garde music, you know, playing a single note and, you know, it, it, all of the tertiary notes. And I'm, once again, I'm way out of my class here. I know very little about music, but just like yeah. that sort of thing for like five minutes, yeah. you know, you know, just that sort of dissonance and, and stuff. And it, But it was all almost borderline academic. You know, it had no application yet in, in pop culture. And uh, no one, unless you, like I said, unless you were listening to like, Coleman or Sun Ra had anything like that. I mean, Revolver hadn't even come out yet. Tony Janelli, who is the subject and the narrator of the film, yes. does he still flash this card around now and then when when uh, when when you talk to him about uh, you know cool things that have happened in his life, or is this film kind of made this a moot point now for him? No, you know the thing is is that he was always very very humble about about it. You know, just so you know, he's a, a, a very accomplished um, uh, cinematographer. He's played, he's, he's, he shoots for the A-list, especially New York filmmakers. A uh, great friend of Jonathan, uh, the late, great Jonathan Demi. So he's got other things to talk about. And this is just this interesting bar story that he, you know, it, just, it turned into. But he was always very careful about saying, look, I wasn't hip. It wasn't like I saw this and was just like, oh, I've seen the light. I was just, it was this freaky thing that I couldn't stop looking at when all of my friends left the, the arena. It took us a while to develop this story. There were a lot of people who were pressuring us that I tell it from the Velvet Underground point of view, but there's no story there. Right. 
the Velvet Underground came, came the Velvet Underground. They played, they were the Velvet Underground. They left, they were still the Velvet Underground. There was no arc there. The people who were forever changed were these kids. The ones, the the 10% that stayed. The smattering know. of applause at the end of the of the concert. Those are the yeah. kids who were changed, yeah. Those guys were never the same again. So I, you know, once we discovered that, but Tony was very clear. He was like, look, I'm not a hero. I'm not a hero. And I said, no, but anyone who survived the Titanic, we need to get them on the record. Anyone who was there at the Battle of the Somme, we need to, everyone, everyone who survived that, we need to get there. And this is the, you know, like the rock and roll equivalent Right. of something like that, of right. Picasso's first show in Paris, of uh, yeah. Stravinsky's first performance of The Righteous Spring. You know, this is a seminal event that, you know, and I always tell, tell people this, like David Bowie would have killed to have been there. He would have That's killed true. to have been there. You know, he wants to know every single word. He wants to know everything that happened, which brings me to something really interesting. You mentioned Nico before. The way we developed this film was over a series of interviews. Uh, I interviewed Tony for, for you know, hours. And, you know, and I've, I've, I've done this sort of work before, just talking to people and just getting them to open up. That's my, I have any, that's a, it's a forte of mine, is just getting people to open up, trust me. And I just had him just, all right, let's tell the story again. Oh, okay, this. And every time there's more details and there's more stuff, his date, he couldn't remember who his date was that night, which I thought was really interesting. And I was like, that's really interesting. But one thing is, is that he placed Nico at the concert. And I remember Nico at the concert and I do my research. I let him do it a couple of times. And then I, I let him know that Nico was not there. It's impossible for her to have been there. She was in Europe. They hadn't met Andy Warhol. The only reason Nico was a part of the band was because Andy Warhol, she was part of the factory and Andy Warhol kind of put them together. So there was no way on earth that she could have been there. And he was, he was stunned because he remembers her there. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually asked him to describe what she wore and he was able to do it. Now, I'm not saying that he didn't see, you know, Nico and the Velvet Underground play together because he had seen them afterwards. And I'm saying you're conflating these things. Yeah. And it's really interesting the way memory, memory works. You know, which is why, uh, once again, I, I said, we have to get you, we have to document this for posterity. It's so much fun. It's a short animated documentary film that's won a number of awards, by the way. I wanted yeah. to point out that uh, DocuTa, it won best, yeah. best short documentary. What are some of the other places? My favorite one, the one that just floors me. We won an ASIFA award. ASIFA East gave us an award. ASIFA is the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences for Animation. Congrats. Wow. It, yeah, no, right? Thank you. Yeah, and I'm not an animator. This is my first animated film. I was learning how to animate while making the film, which is like driving the car and, and, and paving the road at the same time. It's wow. just like, Amazing. so like, the fact of the matter is, is that like, I am, I'm still not an animator. I'm an animator like person. I had Lee pick up the award. I was, I wasn't in New York at the time, but I was like, Lee, this is your, this is you, you know, yeah. Lee is my yeah. animator. I had him pick it up. We often refer to it as like, he's the George Martin of the, um, uh, of the team, you know, like <laughs> we had all these ideas and he yeah. like, oh, okay, yeah. give me a minute and I'll figure out how to do that. You know? Awesome. Well, Congratulations on the film. Thank you. Velvet Underground played at my high school. 
And you've got other projects coming up. I I would assume you're working on stuff. You, you want to let us know what's, what's on the wrong? I'm working on a, working on a bunch of things. Yeah. One, the Velvet Underground played at my high school is playing in New York on October 9th um, as a part of a drive-in screen. Um, uh, a drive-in screening. We're going to be playing in front of Greece. We played last week in front of the Rocky Horror Picture Show in the same series. Yeah. But um, if you want to see the film and you want to see Greece, it's playing in New York City at Hudson Yards. I'm working on a uh, another animated film. It's totally animated by hand. It's taking way too long. It's Randy Jacobs and Kenny and Kenny Aronoff. They are LA musicians, bar none. They recorded an EP. And they wanted me to do a video for it. And I told them, I reminded them that like animation is the longest, you know, workflow in the world. Right. So this is going to take a while. No, no, it's not a problem. You know, we got all kinds of things to do and the coronavirus and everything. You know, like last week I got a phone call like, so, so what's the timetable? <laughs> and I was like, I warned you, I warned <laughs> you, this is going to take a while. But even then I still got to get, get that done. Big thing that I'm working on right now is a, um, I'm forming a charity called Unarmed. And it's basically uh, my friend Rafi Rivero. He, for years, he'd been, he's been um, working on this art project about basically the murder of, um, of black, of black youths and black people by, by police officers. It started with Trayvon Martin and he made a jersey, a basketball jersey for Trayvon Martin. Because his idea is like, how come black youths are, black men are adored when they play sports, but they become threats of, in, in other ways. So he started just doing this as like a, like an art project. It was just uh, on, um, on the screen and he would post right. it up. So it would say Martin, and it would have a bullet for every, a star for every bullet and other uh, things. And suddenly he, he was, he's been doing this for, for eight years. And during the George Floyd protests, he put up, um, he wheat pasted all the jerseys around sports arenas in Brooklyn and, and, um, and in certain areas in Manhattan. Now we're, we're, we're forming a company. We're going to make the jerseys. Oh, wow. Well, you know, yeah. there's one for George Floyd. There's one for Breonna Taylor. The George Floyd one is from Minneapolis. We use Minneapolis colors. Right. You know, Louisville. Mike Brown is a baseball jersey that like Saint, the St. Louis Cardinals. And we're going to be um, making jerseys and everything is going to profit. We're forming a, a 501c3. And um, how can people how can people plug into this when when it's ready, when you're all up? We're on Instagram where you're, I think we're about to launch Facebook and um, unarmed.co is, is about to be relaunched. We're going to do a tour. We're going to be wheat pasting in every one of the cities that these events happen. And we're going to be trying to, you know, shake hands and work with the activist groups already there and try and shine a light on them and see if we can get this going. And this is going to be, we're going to start this in October and go um, uh, all the way to the election. That's fantastic. That's great. Well, all the best on that. All the best on uh, the Velvet Underground played at my high school and with your other film projects. I hope you'll come back, whatever that uh -huh. might be, and come back to promote uh, Unarmed as well. We'll, we'll work something out. So thank yeah. you so much. The director of just a really great, fun, animated documentary. It feels a little awkward to even describe it that way. It's just uh, called The Velvet Underground played at my high school. We've been talking with the director, Robert Pietri. Thank you so much, Robert. Thank you. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. 
You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. 